Stirring Times in Austria, an essay by Mark Twain. This article first appeared in Harper's New Monthly Magazine for March 1898, volume 96. This is part two of two. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Section 3. Curious Parliamentary Etiquette In consequence of Dr. Lecker's twelve-hour speech and the other obstructions furnished by the minority, the famous thirty-three-hour sitting of the House accomplished nothing. The government side had made a supreme effort, assisting itself with all the helps at hand, both lawful and unlawful, yet had failed to get the Ausgleich into the hands of a committee. This was a severe defeat. The right was mortified, the left was jubilant. Parliament was adjourned for a week to let the members cool off, perhaps a sacrifice of precious time, for but two months remained in which to carry out the all-important Ausgleich to a consummation. If I have reported the behavior of the House intelligibly, the reader has been surprised at it, and has wondered whence these lawmakers come and what they are made of, and he has probably supposed that the conduct exhibited in the long sitting was far out of the common, and due to the special excitement and irritation. As to the make-up of the House, it is this. The deputies come from all the walks of life and from all the grades of society. There are princes, counts, barons, priests, peasants, mechanics, laborers, lawyers, judges, physicians, professors, merchants, bakers, shopkeepers. They are all religious men. They are earnest, sincere, devoted, and they hate the Jews. The title of doctor is so common in the House that one may almost say that the deputy who does not bear it is by that reason conspicuous. I am assured that it is not a self-granted title, and not an honorary one, but an earned one, that in Austria it is very seldom conferred as a mere compliment, that in Austria the degrees of doctor of music, doctor of philosophy, and so on, are not conferred by the seats of learning, and so, when an Austrian is called doctor, it means that he is either a lawyer or a physician, and that he is not a self-educated man, but is college-bred, and has been diplomaed for merit. That answers the question of the constitution of the house. Now as to the house's curious manners. The manners exhibited by this convention of doctors were not at that time being tried as a wholly new experiment. I will go back to a previous sitting in order to show that the deputies had already had some practice. There had been an incident. The dignity of the house had been wounded by improprieties indulged in in its presence by a couple of the members. The matter was placed in the hands of a committee to determine where the guilt lay, and the degree of it, and also to suggest the punishment. The chairman of the committee brought in his report. By this it appeared that in the course of his speech, Deputy Shuramo said that religion had no proper place in public schools. It was a private matter. Whereupon Deputy Grigorig shouted, How about free love? To this, Deputy Ero flung out this retort, 
soda water at the Wimberger. This appeared to deeply offend Deputy Grigorik, who shouted back to at Eero, You cowardly blitherskite, say that again. The committee had set for three hours. Grigorik had apologized. Eero had explained. Eero explained that he didn't say anything about soda water at the Wimberger. He explained in writing, and was very explicit, I declare upon my word of honor that I did not say the words attributed to me. Unhappily for his word of honor, it was proved by the official stenographers and by the testimony of several deputies that he did say them. The committee did not officially know why the apparently inconsequential reference to soda water at the Wimberger should move Deputy Grigorik to call the utter of it a cowardly blitherskite. Still, after proper deliberation, it was the opinion that the House ought to formally censure the whole business. This verdict seems to have been regarded as sharply severe. I think so, because Deputy Dr. Luger, Burgermeister of Vienna, felt it a duty to soften the blow to his friend Grigorig by showing that the soda-water remark was not so innocuous as it might look, that indeed Grigorig's tough retort was justifiable and he proceeded to explain why. He read a number of scandalous postcards which he intimated had proceeded from Eero, as indicated by the handwriting, though they were anonymous. Some of them were posted to Grigorig at his place of business, and could have been read by all his subordinates. The others were posted to Grigorig's wife. Luger did not say, but everyone knew that the cards referred to a matter of town gossip which made Mr. Grigorik a chief actor in a tavern scene where siphon-squirting played a prominent and humorous part, and wherein women had a share. There were several of the cards, more than several, in fact. No fewer than five were sent in one day. Dr. Luger read some of them, and described others, some of them had pictures on them, one a picture of a hog with a monstrous snout, and beside it a squirting soda siphon, below it some sort of sarcastic doggerel. Grigorig deals in shirts, cravats, etc. One of the cards bore these remarks, much respected deputy and collar sore, or stealer, another hurrah for the Christian social work among the women assemblages, Hurrah for the soda squirter. A comment by Dr. Luger, I cannot venture to read the rest of that one, nor the signature either. Another, would you mind telling me if... Comment by Dr. Luger, the rest of it is not properly readable. To Deputy Grigorig's wife, much respected Madame Grigorig, the undersigned desires an invitation to the next soda squirt. Comment by Dr. Luger, Neither the rest of the card nor the signature can I venture to read to the house, so vulgar they are. The purpose of this card, to expose Grigorik to his family, was repeated in all of these other anonymous missives. The house by vote censured the two improper deputies. This may have had a modifying effect upon the phraseology of the membership for a while, and upon its general exuberance also, but it was not for long. As had been seen, it had become lively once more on the night of the long sitting. At the next sitting after the long one, there was certainly no lack of liveliness. 
the president was persistently ignoring the rules of the house in the interests of the government side and the minority were in an unappeasable fury about it the ceaseless din and uproar the shouting and stamping and dust banging were deafening but through it all burst voices now and then that made themselves heard some of the remarks were of a very candid sort and i believe that if they had been uttered in our house of representatives they would have attracted attention i will insert some samples here not in their order but selected on their merits dr mayrader to the president you have lied you conceded the floor to me make it good or you have lied mr glichner to the president leave get out wolf indicating the president there sits a man to whom a certain title belongs unto wolf who is continuously reading in a powerful voice from a newspaper arrive these personal remarks from the majority oh shut your mouth put him out out with him wolf stops reading a moment to shut at dr Lieger, who has the floor but cannot get a hearing please betrayer of the people begin dr Lieger, meine herren oh and groans come out wolf that's the holy light of the christian socialist mr klotzenbauer the christian socialist damnation are you ever going to quiet down wolf discharges a galling remark at mr Voldmeyer. Voldmeyer responding you jew you there is a momentous lull and dr Lieger begins his speech graceful handsome man with winning manners and attractive bearing a bright and easy speaker and is said to know how to trim his political sails to catch any favoring wind that blows he manages to say a few words then the tempest overwhelms him again wolf stops reading his paper a moment to say a drastic thing about luger and his christian social pieties which sets the christian socialists in a sort of frenzy mr filolavich you leave the christian socialists alone you word of honor breaker obstruct all you want to but you leave them alone you've no business in this house you belong in a gin mill mr prochaska in a lunatic asylum you mean filolavich it's a pity that such a man should be a leader of the germans he disgraces the german name dr schneider it's a shame that the like of him should insult us Srobot to wolf contemptible cub we will bounce thee out of this it is inferable that the thee is not intended to indicate affection this time but to reinforce and emphasize mr strobach's scorn dr scheicher his insults are of no consequence he wants his ears boxed dr Lieger to wolf you'd better worry a trifle over your iro's word of honor you are behaving like a street arab dr scheicher it's infamous dr Lieger, and these shameless creatures are the leaders of the german people's party meantime wolf goes whooping along with his newspaper readings in great contentment dr petai shut up shut up shut up you haven't the floor strobach the miserable cub dr Lieger, 
to wolf raising his voice strenuously above the storm you are a fully honorless street brat a voice fire the rapscallion out but wolf's soul goes marching noisily along just the same Schoenerer, vast and muscular and endowed with the most powerful voice in the reichsrath comes ploughing down through the standing crowds red and choking with anger halts before deputy volmeyer grabs a rule and smashes it with a blow upon the desk threatens volmeyer's face with his fist and bells out some personalities and a promise only you wait we'll teach you a whirlwind of offensive retorts assails him from the band of the meek and humble christian socialists compacted around their leader that distinguished religious expert dr luger burgermeister of vienna our breath comes in excited gasps now and we are full of hope we imagine that we are back fifty years ago in the arkansas legislature and we think we know what is going to happen and we are glad we came and glad we are up in the gallery out of the way where we can see the whole thing and yet not have to supply any of the material for the inquest however as it turns out our confidence is abused our hopes are misplaced dr Petai wildly excited you quiet down or we shall turn ourselves loose there will be a cuffing of ears prochaska in a fury no not ear boxing but genuine blows philolavich i would rather take my head off to a jew than to wolf srobach to wolf jew flunky here we have been fighting the jews for ten years and now you are helping them to power again how much do you get for it Polanski, what he wants is a straitjacket. Wolf continues his readings. It is a market report now. Remark flung across the house to Schoenherr. Die Großmutter auf den Misthaufen erzeugt worden. It will be judicious not to translate that. Its flavor is pretty high, in any case, but it becomes particularly gamey when you remember that the first gallery was well stocked with ladies apparently it was a great hit it fetched thunders of joyous enthusiasm out of the christian socialists and in their rapture they flung biting epithets with wasteful liberality at special detested members of the opposition among others this one had schoener air bordel in der krugerstrasse then they added these words which they whooped howled and even sang in deep voice chorus Schmul lieb kun, schmul lieb kun, schmul lieb kun, and made it splendidly audible above the banging of desk boards and the rest of the roaring cyclone of Finnish noises. A gallery witticism comes flitting by from mouth to mouth around the great curve. The swan song of Austrian representative government. You can note its progress by the applause of smiles and nods as it skims along. Kletzenbauer, Holofernes, where is Judith? There's a storm of laughter. Rigorig, the shirt merchant, this wolf theatre is costing six thousand florins. Wolf, with sweetness, notice him, gentlemen, it is Mr. Grigorig. There's laughter. Philolavik to Wolf, you Judas, Schneider, Rothel Knight, chorus of voices, East German, Ophel Tub. 
and so the war of epithets crashes along with never-diminishing energy for a couple of hours. The ladies in the gallery were learning. That was well, for by and by, ladies will form a part of the membership of all the legislatures in the world, as soon as they can prove competency that will be admitted. At present, men only are competent to legislate. Therefore, they look down upon women, and would feel degraded if they had to have them for colleagues in their high calling. Wolf is yelling another market report now. Guessman, shut up, you infamous louse brat. During a momentary lull, Dr. Leger gets a hearing for three sentences of his speech. They demand and require that the president shall suppress the four noisiest members of the opposition. Wolf, with a that settles it toss of the head, the shifty trickster of Vienna has spoken. Ero belonged to Schoener's party. The word of honor incident has given it a new name. Grigori is a Christian socialist and hero of the postcards and the Wimberger soda squirting incident. He stands vast and conspicuous and conceited and self-satisfied and roosterish and inconsequential at Luger's elbow and is proud and cocky to be in such great company. He looks very well indeed, really majestic and aware of it. He crows out his little empty remark now and then, and looks as pleased as if he had been delivered of the Ausgleich. Indeed, he does look notably fine. He wears almost the only dress vest on the floor. It exposes a continental spread of white shirt front. His hands are posed at ease in the lips of his trouser pockets. His head is tilted back complacently. He is attitudinizing. He is playing to the gallery. However, they are all doing that. It is curious to see. Men who only vote and can't make speeches and don't know how to invent witty ejaculations wander about the vacant parts of the floor and stop in a good place and strike attitudes, attitudes suggestive of weighty thought mostly, and glance furtively up in the galleries to see how it works. Or a couple will come together and shake hands in an artificial way and laugh a gay manufactured laugh and do some constrained and self-conscious attitudinizing. And they steal glances at the galleries to see if they are getting notice. It is like a scene on the stage by play by minor actors at the back while the stars do the great work in the front. Even Count Badini attitudinizes for a moment and strikes a reflective Napoleonic attitude of fine picturesqueness, but soon thinks better of it and desists. There are two who do not attitudinize, poor harried and insulted President Abramovitz, who seems to be totally miserable and can find no way to put the dreary time but by swinging his bell and by discharging occasional remarks which nobody can hear, and a resigned and patient priest who sits lonely in a great vacancy on majority territory and munches an apple. Scherner lifts his foghorn of a voice and shakes the roof with an insult discharged at the majority. Dr. Lure, the honorless party, would better keep still here. Grigori, the echo welling out of his shirt front, yes, keep quiet, pimp. Scherner to Luger, political mountebank. Puchaska to Scherner, drunken clown. During the final hour of the sitting, Many happy phrases were distributed through the proceedings, 
Among them were these, and they are strikingly good ones, Blatherskite, Blackguard, Scoundrel, Brothel Daddy. This last was a contribution of Dr. Gessman, and gave great satisfaction, and deservedly it seems to me that it was one of the most sparkling things that was said during the whole evening. At half-past two in the morning the House adjourned. The victory was with the opposition. No, not quite that. The effective part of it was snatched away from them by an unlawful exercise of presidential force, another contribution toward driving the mistreated minority out of their minds. At other sittings of the Parliament, gentlemen of the opposition, shaking their fists for the president, addressed him as Polish dog. At one sitting, the angry deputy turned upon a colleague and shouted, blank. You must try to imagine what it was. If I should offer it even, the original word would probably not get by the magazine editor's blue pencil. To offer a translation would be to waste my ink. Of course, this remark was frankly printed in its entirety by one of the Vienna dailies, but the others disguised the toughest half of it with stars. If the reader will go back over this chapter and gather its array of extraordinary epithets into a bunch and examine them, he will marvel at two things, how this convention of gentlemen should consent to use such gross terms, and why the users were allowed to get out of the place alive. There is no way to understand this strange situation. If every man in the house were a professional blackguard and had his home in a sailor boarding house, one could still not understand it, for although that sort do use such terms, they never take them. These men are not professional blackguards. They are mainly gentlemen and educated. Yet they use these terms and take them, too. They really seem to attach no consequence to them. One cannot say that they act like schoolboys, for that is only almost true. Not entirely. Schoolboys blackguarded each other fiercely and by the hour, and one would think that nothing would ever come of it but noise, but that would be a mistake. Up to a certain limit the result would be noise only, but that limit overstepped, trouble would follow right away. There are certain phrases, phrases of a peculiar character, phrases of the nature of that reference to Schoenherr's grandmother, for instance, which not even the most spiritless schoolboy in the English-speaking world would allow to pass unavenged. One difference between schoolboys and the lawmakers of the Reichsrat seemed to be that the lawmakers have no limit, no danger line. Apparently they may call each other whatever they please and go home unmutilated. Now, in fact, they did have a scuffle on two occasions, but it was not on account of names called. There has been no scuffle where that was the cause. It is not to be inferred that the house lacks a sense of honor because it lacks delicacy. That would be an error. Evil was caught in a lie, and it profoundly disgraced him. The house cut him, turned its back upon him. He resigned his seat, otherwise he would have been expelled. But it was lenient with Grigorig, who had called Ero a cowardly blatherskite in a debate. It merely went through the form of mildly censuring. That did not trouble Grigorig. The Viennese say of themselves that they are an easy-going, pleasure-loving community, making the best of life, and not taking it very seriously. Nevertheless, 
they are grieved about the ways of their parliament, and say, quite frankly, that they are ashamed. They claim that the low condition of parliament's manners is new, not old. A gentleman who was at the head of the government twenty years ago confirms this, and says that in his time the parliament was orderly and well-behaved. An English gentleman of long residence here endorses this, and says that, that a low order of politicians originated in the present forms of questionable speech on the stump some years ago, and imported them into the parliament. However, some day there will be a minister of etiquette and sergeant-at-arms, and then things will go better. I mean if Parliament and the Constitution survive the present storm. Section 4. The Historic Climax During the whole of November, things went from bad to worse. The all-important Ausgleich remained hard aground and could not be sparred off. Badini's government could not withdraw the language ordinance and keep its majority, and the opposition would, could not be placated on easier terms. One night, while the customary pandemonium was crashing and thundering along at its best, a fight broke out. It was a surging, struggling, shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder scramble. A great many blows were struck. Twice, Schoenerer lifted one of the heavy ministerial futules, some say with one hand, and threatened members of the majority with it, but it was wrenched away from him. A member hammered Wolf over the head with the president's bell, and another member choked him. A professor was flung down and belabored with fists and choked. He held up an open penknife as a defense against the blows. It was snatched from him and flung to a distance. It hit a peaceful Christian socialist who wasn't doing anything and brought blood from his hand. This was the only blood drawn. The men who got hammered and choked looked sound and well the next day. The fists and the bell were not properly handled, or better results would have been apparent. I am quite sure that the fighters were not in earnest. On Thanksgiving Day, the sitting was a history-making one. On that day, the harried, bedeviled, and despairing government went insane. In order to free itself from the thraldom of the opposition, it committed this curiously juvenile crime. It moved an important change of the rules of the House, forbade debate upon the motion, put it to a stand-up vote instead of A's and no's, and then gravely claimed that it had been adopted whereas to even the dullest witness, if I without modesty may pretend to that place, it was plain that nothing legitimately to be called a vote had been taken at all. I think that Saltpeter never uttered a truer thing than when he said, Whom the gods would destroy, they first make mad. Evidently the government's mind was tottering when this bald insult to the house was the best way it could contrive for getting out of the frying pan. The episode would have been funny if the matter at stake had been a trifle, but in the circumstances it was pathetic. The usual storm was raging in the house. As usual, many of the majority and most of the minority were standing up to have a better chance to exchange epithets and make other noises. Into this storm Count Falkenhayn entered with his paper in his hand, and at once there was a rush to get near him and hear him read his motion. 
In a moment he was walled in by listeners. The several clauses of his motion were loudly applauded by these allies, and as loudly disapplauded, if I may invent a word, by such of the opposition as could hear his voice. When he took his seat, the president promptly put the motion, persons desiring to vote in the affirmative stand up. The house was already standing up, had been standing for an hour, and before a third of it had found out what the president had been saying, he had proclaimed the adoption of the motion, and only a few heard that. In fact, when the house is legislating, you can't tell it from artillery practice. You will realize what a happy idea it was to sidetrack the lawful A's and no's and substitute a stand-up vote by this fact that a little later, when a deputation of deputies waited upon the president and asked him if he was actually willing to proclaim that the measure had been passed, he answered, yes, and unanimously. It shows that, in effect, the whole house was on its feet when that trick was sprung. Footnote. In that gracious bygone time, when a mild and good-tempered spirit was the atmosphere of our house, when the manner of our speakers was studiously formal and academic, and the storms and explosions of today were wholly unknown, etc. This was the translation of an opening remark of an editorial in this morning's Neue Freie Presse, December 1st, 1897. Mark Twain, end of footnote. The Lex Falkenhayn, thus strangely born, gave the president power to suspend for three days any deputy who should continue to be disorderly after being called to order twice, and it also placed at his disposal such force as might be necessary to make the suspension effective. So the House had a sergeant-at-arms at last, and a more formal one as to power than any other legislature in Christendom had ever possessed. The Lex Falkenhayn also gave the House itself authority to suspend members for thirty days. On these terms, the Ausgleich would be put through in an hour, apparently. The opposition would have to sit meek and quiet and stop obstructing or be turned into the street, deputy after deputy, leaving the majority an unvexed field for its work. Certainly the thing looked well. The government was out of the frying pan at last. It congratulated itself and was almost girlishly happy. Its stock rose suddenly from less than nothing to a premium. It confessed to itself, with pride, that its Lex Falkenhayn was a masterstroke, a work of genius. However, there were doubters, men who were troubled and believed that a grave mistake had been made, that it might be that the opposition was crushed, and profitably for the country too. But the manner of it, the manner of it, that was the serious part. It could have far-reaching results, results whose gravity might transcend all guessing. It might be the initial step toward a return to government by force, a restoration of the irresponsible methods of obsolete times. There were no vacant seats in the galleries next day. In fact, standing room outside the building was at a premium. There were crowds there and a glittering array of helmeted and brass-buttoned police on foot and on horseback to keep them from getting too much excited. No one could guess what was going to happen, but everyone felt that something was going to happen and hoped that he might have a chance to see it. 
or at least get the news of it while it was fresh. At noon the house was empty, for I do not count myself. Half an hour later the two galleries were solidly packed. The floor was still empty. Another half hour later Wolf entered and passed to his place, and then other deputies began to stream in, among them many forms and faces familiar of late. By one o'clock the membership was present in full force. A band of socialists stood grouped inside the ministerial desks in the shadow of the presidential tribune. It was observable that these official strongholds were now protected against rushes by bolted gates, and that these were in ward of servants wearing the house's livery. Also, their movable desk boards had been taken away, and nothing left for disorderly members to slap with. There was a pervading anxious hush, at least what stood very well for a hush in that house. It was believed by many that the opposition was cowed, and that there would be no more obstruction, no more noise. That was an error. Presently the president entered by the distant door to the right, followed by Vice President Fuchs, and the two took their way down past the Polish benches toward the tribune. Instantly the customary storm of noises burst out and was higher and higher and wilder and wilder, and really seemed to surpass anything that had gone before it in that place. The president took his seat and begged for order, but no one could hear him. His lips moved, one could see that. He bowed his body forward appealingly and spread his great hand eloquently over his breast. One could see that. But as concerned his uttered words, he was probably could not hear them himself. Below him was the crowd of two dozen socialists glaring up at him, shaking their fists at him, roaring imprecations and insulting epithets at him. This went on for some time. Suddenly the socialists burst through the gates and stormed up through the ministerial benches, and a man in a red cravat reached up and snatched the documents that lay on the president's desk and flung them abroad. The next moment he and his allies were struggling and fighting with a half-dozen uniformed servants who were there to protect the new gates. Meantime, a detail of socialists had swarmed up the side steps and overflowed the president and the vice and were crowding and shouldering and shoving them out of the place. They crowded them out and down the steps and across the house, past the police benches, and all about them swarmed the hostile Poles and Czechs who resisted them. One could see fists go up and come down, with other signs and shows of a heady fight. Then the president and the vice disappeared through the door of the entrance and the victorious socialists turned and marched back, mounted the tribune, flung the president's bell and his remaining papers abroad, and then stood there in the compact little crowd, eleven strong, and held the place as if it were a fortress. Their friends on the floor were in a frenzy of triumph, and manifested it in their deafening way. The whole house was on its feet, amazed and wondering. It was an astonishing situation, and imposingly dramatic. No one had looked for this. The unexpected had happened. What next? But there can be no next. The play is over. The grand climax is reached. The possibilities are exhausted. Ring down the curtain. Not yet. That distant door opens again, and now we see what history will be talking of five centuries hence. 
a uniformed and helmeted battalion of bronzed and stalwart men marching in double file down the floor of the house a free parliament profaned by an invasion of brute force it was an odious spectacle odious and awful for one moment it was an unbelievable thing a thing beyond all credibility it must be a delusion a dream a nightmare but no it was real pitifully real shamefully real hideously real these sixty policemen had been soldiers and they went at their work with the cold unsentimentality of their trade they ascended the steps of the tribune laid their hands upon the inviolable persons of the representatives of a nation and ragged and tugged and hauled them down the steps and out the door then ranged themselves in a stately military array in front of the ministerial estrade and so stood it was a tremendous episode the memory of it will outlast all the thrones that exist today in the whole history of free parliaments the like of it had been seen but three times before it takes its imposing place among the world's unforgettable things i think that in my lifetime i have not twice seen abiding history made before my eyes but i know that i have seen it once some of the results of this wild freak followed instantly the badini government came down with a crash there was a popular outbreak or two in vienna and there were three or four days of furious writing in prague followed by the establishing there of martial law the jews and germans were harried and plundered and their houses destroyed in other bohemian towns there was rioting in some cases the germans being the rioters in others the czechs and in all cases the jew had to roast no matter which side he was on we are well along in december now the new minister-president has not been able to patch up a peace amongst the warring factions of parliament therefore there is no use in calling it together again for the present public opinion believes that parliamentary government and the constitution are actually threatened with extinction and the permanency of the monarchy itself is a not absolutely certain thing yes the lex falkenhayn was a great invention and it did what was claimed for it it got the government out of the frying pan end of stirring times in austria by Mark Twain.